Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University. Today, we're discussing small cell lung cancer in advance of the forthcoming IASLC 2023 hot topic meeting on small cell lung cancer. This meeting in April 2023 will focus on both bench and clinical research advances. I am joined by two of the co-chairs for this meeting. Uh, Let me start by welcoming Dr. Kate Sutherland, Associate Professor and Laboratory Head of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research, or WEHI. Kate, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Stephen. It's a great pleasure to speak with you today, and many thanks for the opportunity to discuss the upcoming small cell lung cancer meeting. Oh, no, thank you for coming. I also want to welcome Dr. Alvaro Quintanel Villalonga, an assistant attending biologist and co-director of the Rudin Lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Alvaro, thank you for being here today. Hi, Stephen. I'm thrilled to be here in company of you and Kate, and looking forward to chatting about small cell and the challenges that lie ahead in the research and treatment of this recalcitrant disease. Let's start by, by talking about this meeting. Kate, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this meeting and its purpose? Absolutely, Stephen. From Wednesday, April 5 to Friday, April 7, the fifth IASLC Hot Topic Meeting on Small Cell Lung Cancer will be held at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. This biannual meeting was the brainchild of our co-chair, Charles Rudin, and his colleague at the time, JT Poyer, who both realised there was an absence of meetings sole disease focused on small cell lung cancer. While this is a mostly preclinical meeting focused on diverse facets of small cell lung cancer biology and preclinical therapeutic research, there's dedicated sessions highlighting ongoing clinical translation. So this meeting really provides an optimal forum for clinicians and basic researchers to come together and learn from each other. And I believe this can really speed up the clinical translation of important molecular findings. And for me personally, this meeting feels a bit like a family reunion. It's a fantastic way to reconnect with old colleagues and welcome and build collaborations with new members of the community. I think it is a unique structure and, and I think it's very exciting. Now, Alvaro, as Kate mentioned, this meeting brings together basic scientists working on small cell lung cancer, making those advances, and clinical investigators focused on, on treating the disease. I think it's um, such an interesting but important format Can you tell us why it's good to bring these two worlds together? Yes, certainly. This is absolutely an important format. As Kate mentioned, this meeting was conceived to discuss the latest advances in small cell lung cancer with a focus on basic and translational research. Even if awareness of the incredible intertumoral and intratumoral heterogeneity of small cell uh, tumors has increased over the last decade, the standard of care for advanced disease is universal for all patients with uh, small cell lung cancer still. The standard of care is based on highly toxic classic chemotherapy and has remained the same for many years until the recent addition of immunotherapy to the combo, which unfortunately has only mildly improved survival of a subset of patients. The current absence of more targeted therapies for small cell tumors really highlights the need to understand the molecular basis of the disease, and that's actually the main focus of the meeting. You can't really separate these two. I mean, if you're a clinician, you need to understand how these drugs work and what to look forward to with the, the upcoming trials. And- So I think this is a a wonderful format, and it is a global meeting. 
Kate, you're coming from Australia. Can you speak a bit to the challenges of organizing an international meeting like this during the pandemic? Yeah, sure, Stephen. Actually, due to the pandemic and travel restrictions, the last small cell lung cancer meeting held in 2021 was held virtually. And I think while the pandemic has really taught us to be savvy with virtual platforms, to learn how to connect with our overseas colleagues better, it's definitely not the same as the interactions that we have when we meet face-to-face. So actually, we really feel fortunate and excited that this year's meeting can be held in person. And it's clear that the whole field is really keen to reconnect as our speaker acceptance rate rate was almost um, close to 100%. I'd also like to take this opportunity to extend my thanks to our fellow co-chairs, Charles Rudin, who I mentioned earlier, Catherine Simpson from Manchester Institute and David McPherson from the Fred Hutch. And of course, the IASLC team have really done an amazing job in making the organisation of this meeting great fun and run smoothly. I think the biggest challenge we face was trying to find a respectable time for all of the co-chairs to meet (laughs) across four different time zones. A good point. And, And I think that everyone's looking forward to seeing each other. You're right. It really does facilitate conversation, discussion. This is sort of where new ideas are born. So I can't wait for the meeting. Let's talk a a bit about the disease, about small cell lung cancer. As our listeners know, small cell lung cancer is an exceptionally lethal subtype of lung cancer. Most of our patients present at a fairly advanced stage. And while this cancer is initially very sensitive to chemotherapy, to radiation, those responses are temporary. And when small cell relapses, It's much more difficult to treat. Since the 80s, our standard treatment was platymetoposide chemotherapy, and it really is remarkable that there were virtually no changes to the treatment of this disease for decades, finally changed in 2018 when we saw the results of phase three studies showing that adding immunotherapy to frontline chemotherapy did improve survival. That is now our standard of care, as you mentioned, Alvaro, but so much more work needs to be done. Alvaro, why has it been so challenging to to study this disease? Well, I think genomic characterization of tumors has been the low-hanging fruit to identify therapeutic targets for many tumor types. In other lung tumors like adenocarcinomas, genomic studies performed like 10, 15 years ago led to the implementation of precision medicine, which transformed patient outcomes. In that setting, in adenocarcinoma, tumors exhibit a relatively low number of mutations per tumor and also mutations occur in oncogenes such as KRAS or EGFR and induce overactivation. And lastly, mutations in such genes occur in a mutually exclusive manner. So I think these particular conditions really paved the way to identify molecular subsets of adenocarcinomas with a clear actionable driver. In contrast, genomic characterization of small cell tumors showed that most of these tumors usually harbor an incredibly high number of genomic alterations. And this made it very difficult to identify molecular drivers of the disease. And on top of that, many of these mutations occur in tumor suppressors, which are to target therapeutically. I think these factors have really given the access of small cell tumors to precision medicine. I think those are all, all really important points. Kate, any other reasons why progress has been so slow in this type of cancer? Yeah, I think compared to non-small cell lung cancer, I think historically small cell has been quite understudied. You know, you call it the forgotten ch- subtype of lung cancer with less research labs focused on understanding the biology of this aggressive disease. But I think the pendulum is shifting now, and this might be due to the creation of funding initiatives, you know, with a sole focus on small cell lung cancer research, and really an increase in the number of multidisciplinary research teams 
working together to make discoveries in this area. Another hurdle that has limited advancements has been the availability of patient samples amenable for molecular studies. Small cell lung cancers are rarely surgically resected, and for those that are, they tend to be early stage samples that may not be representative of advanced disease, the setting where systemic therapy is most important. But luckily, in more recently years, we've seen improvements in technology, and this means we can do more with less, so to speak, which has really improved our understanding of the heterogeneity of the disease. And these studies have led to the identification of more therapeutic targets. And now we're seeing an increased number of clinical studies and clinical trials in this area. So the future is really looking up. I think in large part to the work that the both of you are doing, I think that it, it has been hard to attract uh, a lot of research there because like you said, those samples are small. It's usually a fine needle aspirate and you know, small cell lung cancer is uh, one where you know, while we see stigma throughout lung cancer, I think we see more stigma in small cell, um, really strongly linked to tobacco. Patients often have many comorbidities, so maybe difficult to go back and get repeat biopsies. And I think the other thing that really prevented us from getting large samples and really limited research was this is a, a very aggressive disease and, and really unforgiving in, in how quickly it moves forward. You know, over time, we've seen that 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 really are differences between small cell and non-small cell in terms of biology. Kate, is there anything that, that you can point to that makes small cell a particularly aggressive type of lung cancer? Yeah, I think we've touched upon some of these ideas today already. You know, the lack of targetable mutations, you know, the the response, the poor response to some of the therapies that work quite well in non-small cell lung cancer. But I think one of the other characteristics that's actually a focus of my research lab is, you know, this aggressive nature, the ability of these small cell lung cancer cells to migrate from the lung and seed these lethal metastatic tumours in different organs of the body. And we know that this spread happens really early. And sadly, this means that the majority of patients present in the clinic with advanced metastatic disease at diagnosis. But unfortunately, we know a little less about the mechanisms that allow small cell lung cancer cells to metastasize and why maybe they show a preference for traveling to some distant organs, but not others. So, you know, we really need a focus on understanding also the molecular mechanisms that drive this metastatic potential of these tumor cells. And this could also lead to therapies that can restrict or better stop this spread from occurring. Really important work. And Alva, you touched a little bit on this. You know, we treat all small cell lung cancer the same, even though clearly it's not. And if we look at non-small cell across the aisle, you know, EGFR, ALK, KRAS, we treat those very differently. I think one of the more important advances over the past few years has been the identification of these biologically distinct subtypes of small cell. And I know both of you have worked in this area. Alvaro, can you give us a little background about the subtypes of small cell? Absolutely. So even if the small cell tumors seem very homogeneous, morphologically speaking, they actually show really distinct transcriptional profiles. The current consensus defines four distinct subtypes defined by the dominant expression of one out of four transcription factors, ACL1, NeuroD1, PAO2A3, and JAB1. The ACL1 and NeuroD1 high subtypes show a prominent neuroendocrine profile, while the other two show little or no expression of neuroendocrine markers. Importantly, these subtypes show differential expression of genes with potential therapeutic implications and differential therapeutic vulnerabilities, which got the field really excited. However, even if this consensus was reached just a few years ago, 
Recent reports are already updating it. For example, it was recently shown that JAB1 expression is not really specific enough to define a small cell subtype. And a new subtype was defined characterized by a pro-inflammatory and non-neuroendocrine phenotype and showing increased response to immunotherapy. Also, even if we thought that RB1 inactivation is universal in small cell tumors, a potentially new non-neuroendocrine small cell subtype characterized by RB1 proficiency was recently described. And this may be sensitive to CDK4 and 6 inhibition. Now, Kate, these subtypes clearly are important, and we're looking for anything that can help classify small cell better. These subtypes are going to have direct translational impact, but it's not as black and white as the genomic changes we see in in non-small cell, right? Yeah, that's correct, Stephen. When the distinct subtypes were initially defined, we didn't fully appreciate how this might translate or look for an individual patient. And what now might be a really naive way of thinking was the idea that we could categorize a patient according to one subtype, just like we can for the driver mutations we see in non-small cell lung cancer. But like you said, Stephen, it's never black and white. I think now we're only really beginning to appreciate the true complexity of this disease. In fact, we now know that a patient's tumour can consist of multiple subtypes, and this tremendous subtype heterogeneity we see can alter as a consequence of treatment or even in different metastatic locations. And to add further to the complexity, we've observed that subtypes are not static. Small cell lung cancer cells show plasticity and can switch between different subtype phenotypes, potentially as a response to selective pressure, So all these factors present a real challenge when considering a personalized treatment approach for patients. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, when we think of of EGFR, you know, what we're taught is that when we have an EGFR mutant lung cancer, that is like a founder event. That's something that happens early. It defines that cancer and its vulnerabilities, and it will always be there. That's never lost. And what, what you're saying with plasticity is that if you're one subtype like ASCL1, you can move back and forth between different subtypes. It's like a like a moving target. Uh, Alvaro, do we know anything else about this plasticity? Because this seems like a real challenge. Mm-hmm. I think the heterogeneity and plasticity that we observe in small cell tumors is probably the reason why these tumors are so aggressive and are able to become resistant to, to therapy so quickly. However, recent very exciting reports suggest that we might be able to leverage this plasticity to our favor. These reports show that there are epigenetic enzymes that sustain the neuroendocrine phenotype of small cell tumors and repress the expression of antigen-presenting genes in small cell. Two examples of such uh, epigenetic actors are ECH2, which is the catalytic component of the epigenetic remodeling complex PRC2, and the lysine demethylase uh, LSD1. It's seen that pharmacological inhibition of either of these epigenetic actors induces the loss of neuroendocrine features and increases the response to immunotherapy. This really interesting data suggests that we might be able to guide tumor evolution towards therapy-responsive states. So let me ask a, a couple quick questions, uh, maybe a, li- a little tougher. Kate, when we think on the clinical side for small cell lung cancer, you know, while we have these different subtypes, this is our, our best lead. Our standard treatment today is chemoimmunotherapy for everyone. We're not quite ready to use those biomarkers for patient selection. So our approach would be carboplatinotoposide and atezolizumab based on Empower-133 or platinumatoposide and dervalimab based on Caspian, both regimens FDA approved, both regimens showing an improvement in survival 
for patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer. So that's our standard of care. And with that, we see, you know, in three-year follow-up from Caspian, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20% of patients alive at three years, clearly in advance, clearly our standard of care. But immunotherapy is not effective for most patients with small cell. So, Kate, why do we see immune responses in some patients, but not all? Yeah, this is a great question, Stephen, and an area of really immense interest in the field and an area of active research. As Alvario touched upon, Lauren Byers and her group recently identified a new subtype called the inflamed subtype. And this subtype was characterized by this pro-inflammatory and non-neuroendocrine phenotype. And so Empower 133 was the first randomized trial to evaluate anti-PDL1 with platinum chemotherapy as a first-line treatment in patients. And while this trial was not powered for subtype analyses, Lauren and her team demonstrated a real modest trend towards improved overall survival for patients with this inflamed tumor phenotype in the combination treatment arm suggesting for the first time that patients with a high MHC class 1 expression and increased cytotoxic immune cell infiltrate are more likely to exhibit durable long-term responses to immunotherapy. And while these provide us with some insights, I'm, I'm afraid we don't have all the answers yet. So studies are now really focused on analysing the phenotype of tumour infiltrating immune cells from patient biopsy samples, and this will give us a more detailed characterization of the immune landscape of small cell lung cancer. And this may reveal new immunotherapy targets, such as natural killer cells or maybe gamma delta T cells that don't rely on MHC class 1 presentation, which we know is low in the majority of small cell lung cancer patients. So that might... Um, harnessing these alternative immune cell subtypes might be able to elicit a better anti-tumor response in these patients. I think that's very exciting. And, you know, small cell is different from non-small cell. We've known that since the 60s. And so it doesn't make sense that all the treatments we use in non-small cell would have the same effect in small cell. We do have to alter it a bit. And I'm, I'm excited to see where, where that road goes. You know, but but small cell is such an interesting disease. And there's so many things about it that make it unique. And Alvaro, one thing that, that's puzzled us for a little bit, you know, we think of small cell and non-small cell as two totally different cancers. But we also know that sometimes non-small cell can transform into small cell, suggesting there's some link there. Alvaro, do we know anything about how this histologic transformation occurs? So while well, this phenomenon of lineage plasticity has been extensively studied in the prostate setting, we are just starting to learn how this histological transition occurs in the lung. Concurring in activation of P53 and RV1 seems to predict substantially higher risk of transformation, but these are, however, not sufficient to induce the transformation. Recently reported multiomic analysis on transforming clinical specimens have identified a number of pathways regulated upon transformation, and this include AKT and wind signaling overactivation or induction of the PRC2 complex. Indeed, AKT pharmacological inhibition seems to interfere with histological transformation in preclinical models and delays the process. However, up to date, the drivers of this phenomenon remain undefined, and even if the patient population at high risk have been defined, no therapeutic approaches are currently available to prevent transdifferentiation, which leads to really poor clinical outcomes in transforming patients. I think you've given us some reason for excitement, some reason for hope. It's not easy to make advances in small cell, but 
that nothing worthwhile is. And if it were easy, we, we, we've already done it. So I'll, I'll encourage all the listeners, if they're able to, to think about uh, attending this 2023 Hot Topic meeting on small cell lung cancer, as Kate mentioned, April 5th through 7th, 2023 in New York, New York, uh, sponsored by ASLC. And I, I know we're running up on time, but if I could be so bold before we close, I think that we'd love to hear just a little more about the two of you. Kate, you're the laboratory head of WeHi in Australia. Can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your career path and why you decided to focus on lung cancer? Thanks, Stephen. I'd love to. My PhD studies actually focused on understanding the mechanisms that underpin mammary gland development and mammary stem cells. And this experience really opened my, my eyes to the power of mouse genetics in understanding intricate biological processes. And, you know, I was really interested in, you know, leveraging these model systems to better understand the cellular and genetic processes that drive cancer development. And so why lung cancer? Well, it became quickly apparent to me that there was a lack of research labs in Australia dedicated to just studying lung cancer biology despite lung cancer accounting for the leading cause of cancer-related deaths in Australia. So following my PhD, I moved to Amsterdam and commenced postdoctoral studies with Anton Burns. And he was, you know, the one responsible for generating our first mouse model of small cell lung cancer that the field still uses today. And so while I was in his lab, I generated a series of molecular tools that allowed us to direct lung cancer-associated genes to specific cell types in the mouse lungs. And these studies led to the identification of the cells of origin of small cell lung cancer and KRAS-driven lung adenocarcinoma. In 2013, I was recruited back to WEHI to establish a lung cancer research program, which was a new direction for the Institute. Here, my lab continues to work on these cancers with a particular focus on understanding heterogeneity of these diseases and how this might impact their behavior and response to therapies. So, a wonderful story. And and Kate, I I don't know if our our listeners can appreciate how critical the work that you and and Anton had done um, really in in getting us started in that path, such a huge piece of the puzzle. Um, So, we're all better off for it, and, and you're doing great work there in, in Weehai. Alvaro, let, let's hear from you. Can you tell us about your path to, to lung cancer and to Memorial? Sure. So I did my PhD back in Spain with Luis Pazares, and where I studied the, the role of receptor tyrosine kinases in non-small cell lung cancer. And then I realized what an amazing moment it is to do research in lung cancer with so many discoveries with clinical implications in the last years and, and more to come. And I decided I want to stay in the field. So I joined the Rubid Lab in Memorial Stone Catering as a postdoc, not realizing how incredibly different small cell lung cancer is to non-small cell lung cancer. And it was a real uh, complete change of mindset, but really excited to learn. Memorial Stone Catering is such an amazing place to do research. I have the opportunity to learn from incredibly brilliant researchers, including computational biologists, oncologists, and pathologists. And I always felt extremely supported by my mentor, Charles Rudin. And I think that's probably why my four postdoc years were fruitful. Then Charlie offered me to, to be his research partner and lab co-director. And now all of a sudden I get invited to ISLC podcast with Stephen Liu. <laughs> you're, you're gracing us with your presence. Alvaro, I, I, I think I remember you You got stuck in Spain recently. Isn't that right? Correct. Like during pandemic, uh, I traveled back to Spain and then 
because of the travel ban, I, I was not able to to come back here for five months. Whew, that must have been really hard. Yeah, but luckily Charlie was extremely supportive of that. <laughs> Now, Charlie's the best. And, uh, you know, the comp bio stuff you're doing is great. And you know, congratulations on, on, I know you've gotten some recent grants there. And so we're excited to see the result of the research from both your labs. Uh, but we are out of time for this episode. And so let me thank our guests here. Alvaro, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure, Stephen. Kate, thank you for, for all the work you're doing. Thank you for all your insights today. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 